Hey everyone, it's Lindsay Rhodes, and I've got a new podcast, The NFL Road Show. Fun and kind of nerdy conversation about the NFL every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I've got some amazing guests that are joining me. I'll be breaking the huddle with the top stories, previewing games. We'll get you set for the weekend fantasy with our Fantasy Friday episodes, and we'll answer some of your questions as well. So subscribe to the NFL Roadshow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blue Wire. With the first pick in the 2009 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford. Quarterback. Stafford, step it up, throwing left side, watch Calvin, Enzo, got him, oh baby, that was a rocket. And it's picked off, intercepted by Darius Slade. No one will catch him, touchdown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Michael Rothstein Show brought to you by Indeed and by Bet Online. And if you celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas to you. Our gift shows on both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to get you ready for Saturday's game between the Lions and the Bucks. That is, if it happens on Saturday. And also some conversations about general manager searches and head coaching searches as we have Nick Wagoner on the show who covers the San Francisco 49ers. Talk a little bit about Adam Peters and Robert Sala and a little bit about Martin Mayhew and Matthew Stafford too. Plus we'll get to all of your questions. But the big news, what we've got to start with, the lead today is this. The Detroit Lions need some coaches. They might need some coaches bad when it comes to Saturday against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Daryl Bevel, Corey Oundland, Steve Gregory, Bo Davis, Tyrone McKenzie, otherwise known as the team's head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, defensive line coach, linebackers coach, and defensive backs coach, all in COVID-19 protocol. All, at this point, unknowns for Saturday's game against Tampa Bay. And whew, if you thought that wasn't going to be a problem, guess what? That's that's going to be a problem. Now, it is entirely possible some of these guys are able to get back in time to coach on Saturday. That is a possibility to my understanding. How great of a possibility? I don't know that answer at this point in time because there are some things that are just not clear and seem to still being figured out. I think we'll have a lot more clarity today about who might be available, who definitely won't be available, and what roles will happen. And as far as roles go, one would think that Sean Ryan, the quarterback's coach, would maybe at least take over as the offensive play caller. On the defensive side of the ball, I have no idea what they would end up doing if they ran into that because The three, really three and a half potentially defensive assistants that you still have on your staff are Ty Warren, who is in the William Clay Ford minority assistantship. So he doesn't really have a ton of experience. Then you've got Stephen Thomas. Stephen Thomas is the team's defensive quality control coach. He's been with the Lions since 2019. He coached mostly as a special teams coordinator and inside linebackers coach at Princeton before that. So not a guy with a ton of experience that you can really feel good about. He's bounced around as a quality control coach a bunch of different places on the college level. So not that type of experience that you want. And he's never had any sort of experience calling plays on any level except as a special teams coordinator. Then the other person you were talking about is Tony Carter. He is a defensive assistant. Tony Carter with the Lions for the first time this year. He was a cornerbacks coach at Jacksonville University a year ago. And he's mostly had fellowships and internships before that. He was a player. He did play in the NFL for Denver and for New England and Minnesota and Indianapolis and New Orleans. Played in 45 career games. So he has 
playing experience, but that's not going to get you all that far. They theoretically could maybe use him as a defensive back, but even though that's not allowed by NFL rules, but yeah, it's it's a rough go of it. You could see maybe Billy Yates, who's on the offensive side of the ball now, transition over to help out on defense if needed because he coached some defense the last couple of years in Detroit, but it is the only word for it is a mess. Like, that's the only word to really use for it. It is a complete mess. Offense, they can get by a little bit because the other thing that you have on offense is you have Matthew Stafford. And Matthew Stafford can make play calls at the line. He can do some shifting if he needed to. So you can get away with a little bit more there, maybe not having a play caller than you can on defense. Because even then, the Theoretical play callers on defense, maybe Jamie Collins. Well, Jamie Collins hasn't practiced all week. So you're looking at maybe Deron Harmon. Maybe that's your guy. Trey Flowers would be a guy one would think you would entrust, except he's out. So even some of the guys that you would potentially look at with this, uh, you know, from a defensive perspective, it could be a little bit rough because you're maybe looking at what, Jelani Tavai or Jerry Davis? Well, I mean, Jelani Tavai's in only a second year in the league, Jared Davis has some experience, is very smart, but you pretty much have to commit to him being out there every snap. So it's going to be interesting. I'm really curious to see how they designate things if they need to. Now, there's no guarantee they have to, but it is certainly an interesting situation to go on all top of the, all the other interesting situations throughout the week. Now, there's been some other reporting out there. Daryl Bevel would not confirm or deny that Part of how this happened was that the Lions had an in-person meeting with with some staff. The Detroit Free Press reported that. They also reported that one defensive assistant was not diligent with having his contact tracing tool with him. So that's part of this, too. So that shows a little bit of, to me, a lack of accountability. And Daryl Bevel didn't want to get into all of that. He said he didn't have any definitive comments on that yet i'm curious to see what he says here on thursday i actually asked him straight away um about that instance and that's when he said he couldn't confirm or deny it and then i asked him straight away well you were so straightforward with everything and so forthcoming with what happened with Braden combs on monday and you're not doing as such today when it's a health and safety issue and frankly a wider spread issue and a non-game issue and you know, he just was like, I, I want to give all the facts. I want to make sure I have everything before I say anything. So it clearly sounds like they're still in the, like, fact-finding, gathering mission at this point. But it does not look good for the Lions, especially when you're considering that who they're playing on the other side is Tom Brady, Bruce Arians, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Rob Gronkowski. Like, that's a lo- Antonio Brown. That's a loaded offense. You're already undermanned on defense, and now you're – down your entire defensive coaching staff that's a heck of a 2020 way potentially to go out if you're the Detroit Lions we'll be monitoring this obviously we'll talk a little bit more about it I'm sure on Christmas Day as well for some more clarity but whoo that is uh that is something so we will do a few questions right now in the mailbag then we will take a break And then we will have Nick Wagner on to talk a little bit about Robert Sala and talk about Adam Peters and get into some coaching and GM stuff. And then we'll come back and we'll answer a few more of your questions. And then we'll call it a day and uh, get to Jenna Lane, the Bucks reporter uh, for the Christmas Day Spectacular show. So now let's just dump right into our mailbag. Our first question comes from Bobby430761. Who asks, with potential cuts, how much money can the Lions save so the general manager can sign better players that can be better than what we have? So that's going to completely depend on a couple of things. First, what does the cap actually look like for 2021? And depending on that, I think it tells you what type of players and how many players you will or could cut. They could go completely big time and cut you know, six or seven different players that could open up 30 or so million dollars in cap room, maybe a little bit more than that. They could be more surgical based off of, well, we think maybe this guy can give us enough this year and we don't know what things are going to look like when it comes to dead money. 
and to the draft. So there are so many questions at this point, and I think it starts, too, with who the new general manager is. Because, like, let's just say, for argument's sake, that Scott Pioli or Thomas Dimitrov end up as the new GM. Let's just say that. Well, they have familiarity with Desmond Bryant. Maybe they would want to keep Desmond Bryant there for a culture fit. Maybe they'd want to keep him because they believe in him as a player and they know what he can do. So maybe Desmond Trufant is not a guy that gets moved on from so quickly because of that, where someone else might look at Desmond Trufant and his injuries and what he's going to make next year and say, all right, you know what? It's time to maybe make a move. To me, a guy like Jesse James is a guy who's a very heavy potential cut, um, possibly Danny Shelton, possibly... Um, man, there, there's just there's a bunch of guys that Christian Jones is another one that's a popular potential name there. Uh, so that's I think maybe where you're looking at. Nick Williams is another one, especially if they need to really revamp the defense. But again, some of these guys could fit better in a new scheme, and maybe they become more valuable. So it's a little bit tough to say at this point. We will at some point dive in whether it's a written piece or here on the show to kind of what this might look like in 2021 we did do a little bit of it a couple of weeks ago and I can point you to that episode if you want me to I just don't remember which one it was exactly but I think that it's labeled as such so it is the December 9th show so maybe go back and Take a listen on that. We get really deep into the defense, which is where the majority of those cuts would happen. So that's a good place to look, Bobby. Next question comes from Jeremy Friedrichs, who's at Friedrichs, JK. Jeremy asks, I'm still of the mind that the Lions need to look at a quarterback with their first pick, but do you think that the defense could get so bad that they have to address it first? Four 20-point losses is inexcusable. Listen, some of this is scheme. There's no doubt about that. Some of this is injury. There's no doubt about that. Some of it is just bad. Some of it is just being bad. No talent or minimal talent. That's without a doubt. So I think to me, it all depends on where you're picking and what the board looks like at that point. If you're somehow picking at five or six and Justin Fields or, or Wilson from BYU is still on the board, I think you have to take quarterback at that point. I think you have to feel good about it. If you're at 8 or 9 or 10 and those three guys are off the board and you don't love what you see from Lance and you really just aren't feeling it, maybe you'll go get a Micah Parsons who can be an impact linebacker for you. Maybe you go get an edge rusher. Maybe if the top receiver is out there, maybe you go get the top receiver because that guy is potentially going to be rare especially with some of the receivers from Alabama that are coming out in this draft. So I think that there are different options there that the Lions can pursue. But to me, if one of those top three quarterbacks is on the board, that's who you end up taking. And I mean, again, if you're down in like, say, the 12 to 15 range, and you look at the talent on the board, that's maybe where if Lance is there and he's maybe your best available talent, you take him. To me, I don't think it has to be the first pick. I think you have to consider it with a multitude of different things. Because the other thing, too, is say you're the Lions, and we're just throwing this out there as an example. I'm not saying that they should like this player. But like Kyle Trask from Florida. Let's just say that they like him. Let's say they happen to have him third on their board. But, you know, he's really consensus fifth or sixth quarterback. That's the type of situation where if you're sitting at the end of round one, and say you took Micah Parsons at eight. Let's just use that as an example. Well, maybe you're able to trade back into the bottom of round one to go and then get a Kyle Trask or something like that. And you've now gotten yourself a defensive playmaker and a quarterback that you want to build around. Like that's another option here that you can do if you feel like the drop-off isn't too bad from, say, quarterback three to quarterback five or six. Because I think we all know or that – quarterback one is Trevor Lawrence. I think most people think that quarterback two is more than likely Justin Fields, but maybe Zach Wilson. And the quarterback three is the other person in that. After that, it's kind of a little bit of a of a jumble. So to me, 
I think it's going to all depend on where the Lions are drafting and who is drafting ahead of them and what those situations look like. Because here's the thing too, right? And we talked about it on a prior show. So let's just say now for argument's sake, the Jaguars take Trevor Lawrence. Let's say the Jets at number two decide to take Justin Fields. Well, okay, all of a sudden maybe you can get Sam. Say you can get Sam Darnold for at that point. Let's just say a third round pick. I mean, I you know maybe not even that. Let's just argue argument's sake. Maybe you get him for a second even. Like to me at that point, I would be almost more intrigued in trying to get a Sam Darnold to see if I can rehab him than whatever quarterback I might get in the second round or late, you know, or in the first, that's the fourth fourth best quarterback in a not as super great quarterback class. So that's another thing to just consider when you're looking at what, how this could all permeate out and why I think that's not a lock stock guarantee they take quarterback in the first round. But if they have a top five pick, uh, it's it might be really tough for them to to move away and, and not do that. Guard Johnson one asks, what are the chances the Lions re-sign Galladay and or Aquara for next year? Do you believe that either player would be worth the potential cost to retain them? So, yes, I believe that uh, they would, frankly. I really do. I. I, I absolutely do in that I think you I think you tag Kenny Galladay at this point. Now, listen, this is going to be up to the new head coach and new general manager on both of these situations. But to me, when you're looking at this receiver core, unless you're just like, you know what, we just want to go with smaller receivers speed and that's what we want on the outside. Like and you just want that and that's how you want to build this, you know, maybe similar to kind of what Baltimore has, kind of similar to what Kansas City has a little bit, if that's what you want to build then sure, I can see where maybe you, you let Galladay walk because you don't want to pay him and you hope you get that third-round comp pick back. But I still would con- really consider tagging him because he's, he's a good player. Romeo Aquara, that's a little bit of a more interesting scenario. I think it depends on what defense is being run. I think he's playing himself into a nice like 8 to $10 million a year range, should be. I don't think that you would franchise tag Romeo Aquara. I think you can probably get a good deal done for him, done with him if he wants it. But I would offer, I would give him my best possible offer before he gets to free agency because I think someone will overpay for him in free agency. And I don't get the sense necessarily that his brother being here or, you know, the franchise taking a real chance on him will be like this great pullback. I think he, he he would love it if he could play with with Julian Moore, uh, especially since this season was kind of a lost year. He would love some of that, but at the end of the day, he's not going to make a decision just based off of that. So to me, I would I would almost in some ways prioritize Okwara over Galladay, but not necessarily. But it just depends on, I think, what you're looking at when it comes to the price point. To me, if I were doing this, I would try to keep both guys by tagging Galladay and signing Aquara to a longer deal because that gives you, I think, another year to really make a decision on Galladay, who also is an, who is older than Aquara as well at a position where receivers break down faster than defensive linemen and pass rushers especially who often will sometimes be at their best at 30 and 31, where receivers not as much. Jamara, who's at Jamara23732, how long do you think the general manager process will play out? Do they have any interest in Mike Borgonzi or Dodd from the Saints? I'm assuming that you mean Ed Dodds, who's with the Colts, maybe, or Terry Fontenot from the Saints, maybe even Jeff Ireland from the Saints. Mike Borgonzi's in Kansas City. I think there could absolutely be interest in those four guys, three, four guys. Now, to me... Ed Dodds is a guy that I would really want to interview. He has ties to Robert Sala. That could be a very easy match. You also have different philosophies when you're coming from that space. So I like that potential pairing a lot if you can make it happen. Mike Borgonzi, again, absolutely interview him. He likely would be coming potentially with Eric Bieniemy. although you never know what, what happens with all of this, but that seems to be a logical fit. Um, and then 
Terry Fontenot from the Saints, I don't know a ton about him. I'm going to try and maybe get Catherine Terrell or Mike Triplett on the show next week to talk a little bit about him and talk a little bit about Dennis Allen, perhaps, who's another head coaching candidate, kind of similar to what we're going to do later in this show with Nick Wagner. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there will be interest there. I think they're going to cast a wide net. Um, as far as how long this plays out, I'm guessing mid-January at this point because they want to talk to a bunch of people and they want to make a bunch of decisions and be very thorough. Now, if they feel like they have their guy and they think that that guy might go somewhere else, like let's for argument's sake say Rick Smith is the guy that they really want and they're worried Rick Smith might end up in Atlanta, um, they might say, all right, you know what? Made our decision. This is the guy we really want. You don't let that guy get away. However... If you're not totally sold on that guy, you get the sense that most teams' time frames are similar. I think you try to talk to as many people as possible. Your second question is, what do the Lions do at receiver and free agency in the draft? Um, I think they sign receivers in free agency, and I think they draft at least one receiver, and I draft them pretty high, although you obviously have to do some work on your defense too. Um, I, I don't know if I would really go with a receiver in the first round unless like the scenario I played out before fits to you, you can find receivers late, especially because receivers seem to be more and more plentiful in each draft because of the way the college game has been. But I would also really look at their at free agency for receivers, even maybe some of their own. Like, I mean, I don't know what Marvin Jones would want, but if he'd be reasonable, I would, I would talk to him about it. Same thing with Mohamed Sanu. I think he gives a veteran presence. I wouldn't want too many veterans, but I would want to have some veterans in there, especially if you end up going a rookie quarterback. Like, that's part of it, too. It all plays together. Benjamin Pritchard, who's that Benjamin Pritchard, asks, too depressed, can believe that we continue to waste the greatest Lions quarterback with this horrific defense, meaning Matthew Stafford. I get it. I get that frustration. And, I mean, Matthew Stafford's never verbalized it, but you have to think that, as a human, Matthew Stafford probably feels that way, too. He's never said it. But it's it, it is interesting to watch that happen in Detroit. And it's why I think there is a segment of Lions fans that want Matthew Stafford to go somewhere else because they want to see him win. And their concern is he's just never going to get that chance with the Lions. But, you know, the Lions the Lions had a good defense once and then they blew it up and they let Indomitian Sue get away and it all kind of started there. Dennis Gray, who's at Gray Den, asks, why would any GM be happy to have Chris Spielman between them and, she- and Sheila Ford Hand? So I that's a good question, and it's a question that I think that they any good GM candidate is going to ask of what Chris Spielman's real role is and how that structure is going to work. We asked that structure. We were told that the new GM and the new head coach would not report to Chris Spielman, that Chris Spielman is just working for Rod Wood and Sheila Ford Hamp, but to me, do I trust that? And like, how how do I trust him? Like, there's a lot of questions in there at, that I would have. So, I would again, I would say a general manager who is very comfortable in his own skin and very comfortable in his own philosophy and very comfortable in how he is going to report to Rod or and or to Sheila would be okay with this as long as it's clearly understood what Chris Spielman's role is. If there's any sort of nebulous, any sort of we'll figure it out, any sort of, oh, well, make it whatever you want it to be, that's where, to me, I would get concerned. Tom Nichols, who's at WCP Tom, what are the chances the Lions keep Marvin and Sanu and trade Kenny Galladay since he would demand the largest contract? Um, well, at this point, they can't trade Kenny, Gall- Kenny Galladay unless they franchise tag him because otherwise he's going to be a free agent. So if you're tagging him and then tagging and trading, that is an interesting scenario. Um, I haven't thought much about how that would work yet. I don't know if you keep Marvin Jones and Sanu unless Sanu is willing to come really cheap because Marvin should get some money on the open market. Not Kenny Galladay money, but some money. And the question really is, is do you also want to maybe your top two receivers or two of your top three receivers to be over 30? Like that's not rebuilding. Like to me, if I'm rebuilding, if I'm going in more of a rebuild font, I am looking at maybe keeping one of those guys around to kind of help 
bridge the gap and helped build what I would like to be. And really, either one of those guys can be that guy in Marvin or Sanu. And then really stack it with young guys, like really put Cephas in a in a bigger role. Maybe re-sign Jamal Agnew and put him in a bigger role and really see what he can do with a full offseason. And then you're looking at free agency for younger receivers. Like, if I'm going to pay someone big-time money, maybe I'm paying Corey Davis from Tennessee. Corey Davis is a little bit younger, I believe, than Kenny Galladay. Could be a really interesting fit with the Lions. Again, depending what type of offense they run. That's, that's part of all of this, too, and another question that goes into play. I think there will be a lot of looking, a lot of kind of deciphering once we know who's in there. But questions like that won't be answered until we know who's running the show. Uh, Nespers at Nesper78 says there is a good post on Reddit going over the Ford family's history of general managers, which is embarrassing. I don't recall much coverage of the Schmidt relationship or who had the upper hand when decisions were made any insight my understanding and again i wasn't covering the team at this point i wasn't even living in michigan at this point i was a high schooler my understanding is that wayne fonts had the majority of control and that that was kind of how it worked with personnel chuck schmidt signed off on some stuff but i think wayne fonts was the guy that really had that type of control that's my understanding i could absolutely positively be wrong there but that's, I think, how I understand it. Yeah, they have not had a good history of general managers. It has not gone well. It's why I think how they're handling this search is something that you can feel good about because it shows they're at least listening to a multitude of ideas. They've already brought in four people without ties to the organization, at least hardcore ties to the organization. Thomas Dimitrov was here a couple decades ago as a scout, but okay, that's fine, you know, in addition to the three in-house guys. So they've already talked to seven different people. There are more people that I anticipate they will talk to you as they go here. So I think that you can take more solace in that they're at least giving it more of a real search than they did last time when they talked to a couple of people and everybody seemed to know they were hiring Bob Quinn based off of Ernie Accorsi's suggestion in a large way where this time – they have their advisory committee, but it's really Rod, Sheila, and Chris Spielman who are who are doing a lot of the work. Chris Gordon, who's at Twin Cities Chris, asks, if Wilson, Lance, and Parsons are all there when the Lions pick, what would Mike do? We talked about this a little bit earlier when in the quarterback question. Uh, if, Wilson, if all three are there, I am probably taking Wilson. Uh, I like the potential there. Uh, I think as long as I feel like I have a good quarterback coach that's a developer, I really like that situation. Um, after that, I don't know. I think it depends where you're picking, if that makes sense. Um, the earlier I'm picking in that group, I'm picking Parsons uh, after Wilson. Wilson, like I said, would be the guy. But after that, if I'm picking, say, at nine and Wilson's gone, I'm taking Parsons. If I'm picking at like 15, then maybe I'm picking Lance. That might sound weird, but I think that there's just kind of an understanding of maybe what I can get and what I can't get, maybe try to trade back. It's a good question, and it's way too early for a real answer. But today, Mike today, you know, fake general manager Mike today would probably take Wilson over over them. But, man, I really like Parsons' ability, and you need massive help on defense. And he's a guy that I think can give that to you. But again, some something too when it comes to scheme and making sure that that's a right fit for that. We just don't know what the defensive thing is going to look like yet. Tribe Fan Nine asks Scott says, "Gotta draft Trey Lance and hire Robert Sala. Let's start over on the right foot." That is one man's opinion. I feel like Robert Sala is a very good candidate. You'll hear about him in a couple of minutes from Nick Wagner. Um, and as far as Trey Lance goes, uh, not. Not totally sure exactly what they're getting yet there. I think there's got to be a lot of investigation. Also from him, keep Stafford for 21 or don't. Love the guy and hope he succeeds, but we need to rebuild. Sit Lance next year and build the defense after. 
Lance and in the 2022 draft, get better in 22 and then compete in 23. Salah will take us to the promised land. I think, listen, that's a perfectly reasonable rebuilding plan. And it's one that I think that if you are committing to a true rebuild is what you can buy into. So that's something I think you really can do. We're going to take a quick break here. Went longer than I thought. We'll answer the last couple of questions and then get into Nick Wagner right here on Michael Rock. 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over, much to the happiness of probably everybody. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. That's right, no long-term contracts. And now Indeed's new New way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. 73% of online job seekers in the U.S. visiting Indeed each month according to Comscore total visits. So it's clear Indeed can help you get the quality hire you need. That's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide use Indeed for hiring. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast, faster than even Matt Prater's 59-yard field goal went through the uprights. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. And football, as we have seen, is very much back in full swing. And you might not be at a game this year only 500 or so people can be in Lions games over the last couple of home games, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day. Every day, head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use that promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Now, back to our show. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. Next question comes from Dennis Gray, who's at Gray Den. Which prospective coach out there is most similar to Jim Leland or Scotty Bowman in stature? I think that type of culture-changing coach is needed to turn around the Lions. That's a good question. I don't think there's a stature quote coach out there like that. I mean, maybe you're not going to like the answer. But Jim Harbaugh? I know you say Tony Dungy, but Tony Dungy has shown... No inclination to wanting to come back to coach. None. So to me, if you're looking for that type of coach, I think you're looking at Jim Harbaugh. You're looking at Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer, again, doesn't seem like he's all that interested in getting right back into coaching. You're looking at a Bill Cower, Like those types of guys. And of those, the only one that seems like super interested in coaching right now is Jim Harbaugh. Because he's done it and you know he can do it and he has that personality for it. Uh, Marvin Lewis would be intriguing to me in that because I think when you're looking at just what you're trying to change the culture into, he would be a mass departure from what the culture was under Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn. So to me, that is that would be maybe a place I would look would be Marvin Lewis. Jim Caldwell would be obviously another name, but... That seems like that would probably be a non-starter here, and I think there would be a mass. 
I don't know how you're selling that to fans. I think some fans would be great with it at this point, but that's a tough, 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 tough sell. So other than that, I mean, I don't think with the stature level that you're trying to get, you're going to find another coach. Like Nick Saban's not leaving Alabama. Like to just start, just stop there. Uh, Bob Stoops isn't coming back to coach in the NFL, so stop there. Although Bob Stoops obviously did have in, did have XFL coaching interests, so maybe there's a little bit there, but nothing that I've ever heard. Lincoln Riley is a name that's interesting to me, but I don't think he carries necessarily that stature. David Shaw would be another guy that I think is really interesting that's had experience as a head coach in the college level, but I don't think has that stature that you're talking about as like successful NFL head coach. So those would be some people that I would look at, but there's not really like a Leland or Bowman out there this cycle. Like there was when Gruden came back a couple of years ago that seems to make a whole bunch of sense. I think everyone else, there would be large, large question marks about of whether they would still have it or fit. But I mean, I, I guess I'd reach out to Tony Dungy or to Bill Cower just to ask, but I wouldn't be expecting anything more than I like, Hey, that's really flattering, but uh, I'm good in my, in my current situation. So those are most, I think I got most of the questions. Sorry, I did miss one question, and then we will get to Nick Wagner. Uh, the question is, would Matthew Stafford be perfect for the Tampa Bay offense and coach? They give us a first and second, and Tom Brady, Tom Brady would then retire. Yeah, I don't see that that happening. Sorry, Mark. That comes from Mark Siegel on Facebook. That's, that's not, that's not going to happen. Now, if Tom Brady were to retire... I could see Tampa Bay being interested in Matthew Stafford, without a doubt. Much like I think you could see San Francisco, and Nick's going to talk a little bit about that too, being interested in Matthew Stafford, without a doubt, depending on Jimmy Garoppolo. So, yes, I think you could see Tampa Bay being interested in Matthew Stafford, and perhaps they would be willing to part with some high-level picks for Matthew Stafford, but I can't see Tom Brady being in that conversation. To me, the only way that Tom Brady is in that conversation is if Tom Brady has already decided to retire. The The Lions, because the other thing is, the Lions aren't going to take Tom Brady in a trade if he's not going to play for them. Like, that. that's just not going to happen. So... Part of that question is just not going to happen. But, yeah, I think that, you know, Stafford would be really good in that Tampa Bay offense. I think he'd really fit in it. I think it would be super interesting. And a first and a second to me is a deal that whoever the new head coach and new general manager are, I think would really have to consider. That's a good question, Mark. I appreciate it. And with that, we are going to jump right into our interview. No break. Just right into it with Nick Wagner, our reporter who covers the San Francisco 49ers for ESPN. My next guest on the show covers the San Francisco 49ers for ESPN. And while the Lions aren't playing the Niners and won't at least for a little while, it's worth talking to Nick Wagner because guess what? He knows a lot about Robert Sala. He knows a lot about Adam Peters. And we could even get a little bit potentially into Matthew Stafford. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, yeah, it's, it's that time of year where you're either talking about the playoffs or you're talking about the coaching cycle. And uh, both of us in our careers have done a lot more of the latter than the former. So, so oh, here man, we it, are. Yeah, it's between <laughs> – I was telling somebody, I've said it on the show before, I feel like I'm the arbiter of bad football because I've covered Notre Dame during the Charlie Weiss era, Michigan during the Rich Rodriguez and first couple of years of Brady Hoke, and then the Lions for eight years. It's, it's it's bad football, Nick. Yeah, we, I think a lot of us would try to stake our claims to that. I know our friend John 
time in Washington likes to say that. Our, our buddy Rich Samini up in New York likes to say that. I, I probably had to give up my claim to the throne last year when I covered a Super Bowl team. But before that, I had had a solid 15 consecutive years of covering a losing NFL team between the Rams and the 49ers. So I did I, – I think I probably gave up the crown last year. But, uh, you know, it's one that I was happy to, uh, to move on from a little bit, even if I'm kind of back into familiar territory this year. So, <laughs> so all right, part of the reason you had to give up – that crown is because of the defensive coordinator Robert Sala what makes him an attractive potential head coaching candidate yeah I think the first thing with Sala that you'll hear from everyone there's two things Uh, number one is how intelligent he is And, and I think I've told you in conversations not on the air that Robert Sala is one of the most intelligent people I've ever been around and I don't just mean in football I mean like he's he's just a very very intelligent man and he exudes that and when you talk to him he's very thoughtful and uh, you can see that he's always kind of trying to think two steps ahead now I think some of that also plays into the next thing that that really makes him a guy that a lot of teams are going to be interested in and, and reason that players gravitate towards him it's just his kind of has a natural leadership a natural charisma about him that people want to be around him and I think it goes to it speaks to not only his intelligence from a uh, you know tactical perspective but also kind of his emotional intelligence uh, the way that he can relate to people and uh, on their level you know he can find that common ground with different guys from different backgrounds which of course is a huge part of coaching football and I think those are two things that you put them together and that's kind of why he's got to where he where he's gotten and and every player you talk to about him they say he's a leader of men and he's intelligent those are the first two things that always kind of come out and and I think the other part of it for him is that he's got a, a willingness to adapt. He, he doesn't kind of get stuck in his ways. And I know it's a lot of people will look at the Niners defense and Robert Sala's defense and say, oh, he, he runs cover three. He learned cover three from, from Pete Carroll, and that's all he does. And, yeah, that's the foundation of what he does. But if you really watch their defense, particularly over the last couple of years, he's adapted and evolved based on the personnel that he has. And me personally, Mike, I believe – the best coaches, sure, you want to have your scheme, you want to have your base things that you want to do, and you want to fit players into that. But I think the best coaches find ways to adapt to their talent rather than making their talent adapt to them. And I think that's something that gives Robert Sala a chance to be really successful. You mentioned the leadership piece of it. And to me, that is where you have good head coaches and you have bad head coaches. Like, And that's really where it comes down to because coordinators are coordinators are coordinators. And when you get this job, it's more of a CEO than – a play caller or a scheme creator. Where have you seen that leadership capability come in with him? Yeah, in, ter- in terms of like the, the ability to de- delegate and things like that, you mean? Delegate and also just lead players and, and rally players and have people want to play for him. Yeah, it's it's funny because, uh, you know, the, the thing about Salah, he's, he's a family man. He's got a lot of kids and, and, and all those kinds of things. He's a big chess player, like all these things that you would kind of equate to being a, a relaxed, maybe laid back kind of guy. And he, he kind of comes off that way. But if you watch him on Sundays, he uh, I think that I don't remember who it was, but a player last year said that he turns into the Incredible Hulk. Like if, if you see him on the sidelines. He's, you know, he's fired up on third downs. If the team gets a stop or they get a takeaway, he's the first guy out there chest bumping his guy. And, you know, a lot of that kind of goes back to just that ability to, like I said, that intelligence of knowing how to relate to his players and kind of when to be on and when to be off and when to when to kind of press the right buttons. And, and I think that is kind of how it has manifested in a lot of ways. But I also think that he, is, again, kind of goes back to his adaptability he is really good at delegating to his assistant coaches. Now, part of that is hiring really good ones, and he has some. Uh, I, I think of Chris Kasurik, who you, you may remember from his time in Detroit, is a very well-known defensive line coach, is, is credited league-wide. A lot of people think he's one of the best at that, but he's also a wide nine guy. You know, he, he teaches a very specific style where he's got these defensive ends playing, you know, on the outside shoulder of, of the tackles, which, you know, a lot of people would say, not great for run defense, really good for pass rush and, and those kinds of things. But when Robert Sala hired Chris Kasirik, he didn't say, hey, Chris, I want you to conform to what I want to do. I want you to teach what you do, but just teach it as well as, well as you can. And we'll figure out how to make the other seven pieces fit. Um, so that's just an example of kind of the way that he's adaptable, but also wants it to empower the people that are in charge and his coaches, his assistants to do the best jobs that they can and, and do the things that they're good at. So one of the things you hit on there was – that he hired Chris Kasurik. How much did he actually have a say in who his position coaches were? Because not every coordinator gets that. 
So I was just curious how much, how much he actually did the hiring or how much it was Kyle Shanahan just plopping him with people and saying, here you go. Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question, but I, I will say this. Uh, I think it is – I know this is kind of like stock answer, but I, I think it was a, uh, a group. You know, Kyle Shanahan implicitly trusts Robert Sala. And the thing people need to, to know about Kyle Shanahan that kind of applies to this conversation that I think is very interesting is when Kyle Shanahan was a young offensive assistant for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he was a, a, surrounded by a staff that was full of a ton of future coaches went on to big things. I, I wrote about this for ESPN.com uh, a couple of years ago when they played the Bucks, and he was learning from Monty Kiffin. He was learning from Joe, Joe Woods was there. Mike Tomlin was there. I mean, an, it's like an all-star staff. And Kyle Shanahan used to make it a point, even though he was an offensive assistant, every night he would sit in defensive meetings. And his whole thing was the way he wanted to learn offense was from the, the viewpoint of the other side. How do I put the defense in conflict? How can I create matchups that are favorable to me? And so – I think it speaks very highly of Robert Sala that Kyle Shanahan implicitly trusts him to the point that if you go back to Kyle Shanahan's first two years in San Francisco, they, they were bad. They were not a good team. You know, they had the injury issues, Jimmy Garoppolo in 2018 in particular. And there were people who were legitimately actually calling for Sala's job. And it was one of those things where it was like, well, this is a massive rebuild that they took over and you knew it was going to take some time, but people wanted some sort of something to hold on to of, oh, they're being held accountable. But Kyle Shanahan stuck by Robert Sala because he truly believed in what he was doing, his basic principles, but also the way he was willing to adapt and evolve. And I think that when you look at the way they went about hiring some of those assistant coaches, involving Sala in the process speaks very highly because Kyle Shanahan is a guy who has, you know, he has the power, he has the hammer there, but he also entrusts Robert Sala to handle the defense, also to handle those assistants. And, and I think that if you, if you kind of look at that, how he's gone about building that out, it speaks very highly of, of what Kyle Shanahan thinks of Robert Sala in terms of the way he views defense, because Kyle Shanahan actually sees defense in a very unique way also. One more thing I want to hit on with Sala before we maybe get to assistance and, and get to who may, as a general manager of Sala, ended up being the head coach in Detroit, is when you look at him, there's so much positive that's being talked about. What would be the concerns with him? when it comes to jumping up into that head chair? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think part of it would just be sample size. Uh, how, how long has he been in charge of a large group of players as a coordinator? It hasn't been very long. He's a first-time coordinator who's in his fourth year on the job. So uh, I think that would bring in all the questions that come with that. And, and that's true for any new head coach, of course, but uh, just the things like how do, you, how do you handle clock management? You know, what, is your, what are your in-game uh, adjustments that you're making when you have to view it from the whole team? Uh, how, how does he build out his offensive coaching staff? That's, those are always going to kind of be the natural questions you have with a guy in his situation from like the leadership standpoint and some of that stuff, I'm not sure there are a lot of questions and maybe that's really high praise and maybe I'm just naive about that, but uh, I've been called worse, of course, but I think, I think that it would be a lot of more like tactical things and some of the smaller things and the finite details, because look, Mike, I always say when, when a guy becomes a head coach for the first time, they get two things, right? They get a huge pay raise and they get a big influx, influx of paranoia, right? Every, every head coach, when you become a head coach, you, you become paranoid naturally because you're always – you have so much more on your plate than you ever had, and you're trying to figure it out as you go, and you've never done it. And I've seen a lot of first-time head coaches who have struggled with that, and it's been kind of their downfall in some cases. So I think those are things that are unknowns, and it's not necessarily specific to Sala. So maybe that doesn't answer your question, but I, I think those are kind of the natural things that I would look at and say, okay, how is, how is he going to handle these things uh, if he gets that first opportunity? So if he does get this opportunity, would he maybe try to work with Adam Peters? Is like that a good match there? Because Adam Peters is one of two potential general manager candidates in San Francisco. The other one, probably a non-starter in Detroit, at least in Martin Mayhew. So like, what's that relationship like with Peters and Sala? Is that something that could be a match? Or is that just they happen to work together and people are just going to make that connection because they work together? Yeah, I, I think I, 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 first of all, I think Robert Sala has a good relationship with everybody in that building. Uh, he's very he's very well liked, and I think he and Adam Peters do have a, a relationship. And I think that's going to be a natural connection that people are going to draw. And and I think part of that is because when Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch were brought in, they were brought in as a tandem. And 
I've always been a big believer that you can't do one and then try to piece it around it. You know, you have to try to bring everybody at the same time and build it together and have everybody be on the same page because the quickest way for a franchise to fall apart is to have a general manager and a coach who aren't on the same page. And so I think that Peters is a guy who makes a lot of sense. The question is, is first of all, would Peters leave? He's a, he's native to the area. I believe he's from Cupertino, which isn't far from where the Niners trained. So he, he's got a lot of ties there. He's essentially John Lynch's right-hand man. And, and really in a pure football sense, he's the top personnel executive that they have and there's been points even where it's been discussed you know John Lynch may be getting promoted to more of a team president role and then Peters becomes more of a GM so I think there may be some moving pieces that way I can put it to you this way I know they don't want to lose Adam Peters so um, that would be kind of maybe a roadblock in that regard but I, I do think that Robert Sala just based on what he's seen in the way the 49ers have built it I think he would want to be with someone that he could be on the same page with. Now, that's not limited to Adam Peters. As, as you know, I'm sure your listeners know, there are other guys around the league that he has ties with, be it from Seattle or, or elsewhere, uh, that I'm sure he would be interested in. But I, I definitely think Peters' name is, is going to come up if and when uh, Robert Sala gets a head coaching job. Yeah, I mean, Ed Dodds is obviously from Indianapolis is a name that comes up often. The two guys in Seattle, from Seattle, Kirshner, and, you know, being one of them is another possible avenue there while we're talking about execs I think just people might be curious what has Martin Mayhew brought to the Niners because he's a guy that I think his tenure now maybe is being looked at a little bit more fondly (laughs) after everything that happened over the last five years yeah I think I think what Martin Mayhew brought was a really steady kind of veteran presence so to speak in the personnel side and I know people probably don't look at it that way but Look, the one thing that I admire, uh, there's a lot of things I admire and respect about John Lynch, but one thing that I, I really respect about the way he handled about going into this job is he knew what he didn't know. And, and like he knew that going into this as a guy who was coming out of the broadcast booth, who had been a player, he'd had some limited, you know, kind of dabbled per, in personnel with the Broncos with his friend John Elway there. Uh, but never really was the guy calling the shots. So he knew that he needed people to come in and be the guys that were really deep into the personnel side. And so he hired Adam Peters, which was kind of, the, you know, at the time the young hot shot, so to speak, from Denver. And, and he was going to be a guy who was on the rise. But he also wanted kind of that steady veteran voice who'd been through it, had actually called the shots before, which Adam Peters had not. You know, he'd been a general manager, obviously, and he'd been through all that and knew what it took to kind of build a team. And um, I think that is what Martin Mayhew has really provided is that he's been that guy who's, okay, this is what we're looking for. This is how we find it. And this is how we work with Kyle Shanahan and his staff on what they're looking for. And, you know, they call them teach tapes. You know, what are, what are the tapes that we're watching to try to find the guys who we think are going to fit in best with what Kyle Shanahan's trying to do? And, and I think Martin Mayhew's been really effective on that side. And the other thing Martin Mayhew has done a really, really good job of is, and I think this is something that goes underrated a lot in personnel departments, is the, the professional scouting side. And that, that doesn't just mean your own guys, of course, being able to be honest and have legit conversations about your own guys, but also finding these maybe kind of fringe guys, whether it's a guy coming off an injury or a guy who maybe was underutilized or was in a system that didn't work for him. And I mean, I'll just throw out a couple names at you. You know, Jason Verrett, who he was a Pro Bowl guy with the Chargers in 2015 and then basically didn't play for four years. And they gave him two chances. And this year, He's played at nearly a Pro Bowl level. And, again, that's a guy who kind of proven himself, but you find a bargain that way, and he becomes a starter and is a really valuable guy. And then another name that Lions fans are going to know is Kerry Hyder Jr., who if you had told me a year ago that Kerry Hyder Jr. was going to be leading the Niners in sacks this year, my first response would have been, who's Kerry Hyder Jr.? And second of all, I would have been completely shocked by it because uh, they have Nick Bosa and Eric Armstead and all these guys. So um, the, just kind of that ability to work the fringes of the roster, which I think we would all agree is one of the reasons the Patriots have had so much success over the years, whether it's reclamation projects, guys coming off injury, whatever it is. Um, I think Martin May, he has been very instrumental in helping them do that. It's funny you mentioned Kerry Hyder because obviously Martin also really found him in Detroit and – he had a very similar breakout kind of season because due to injuries to other guys on Detroit's defensive line, I think that was in 2015. That might've been the year that Martin got fired. I'm trying to remember exactly what year it was because they all blend together, but yeah, Kerry Hyder is a guy. One quick Kerry Hyder question before we jump into assistance at Stafford and get you yeah. out of here. Is Kerry Hyder still doing Outback Steakhouse every, 
every week because that was his thing when he first came into the league was it was a superstition thing. They would go to Outback all the time. I, I, I don't know that, but I will have to ask him about that. That's one of those things that the conversation you'd like to have that, but, but for, because of the pandemic, you're getting quick zoom questions and you're, you're in and out. So the chance to get to know them, but uh, I will say this, uh, Kerry Hyder, if, if he is still going to Outback, he will be able to afford it all he wants uh, after this year, because I think he's made himself a nice little chunk of change with, with the, with the solid year that he's having. Yeah, no, it's honestly, Kerry Hyder was always a guy I enjoyed talking with. We had ended up having a pretty good relationship throughout his time here. And uh, it's been pretty cool to see him knowing that, I mean, the first time I wrote about him was because he got fined more than his entire preseason pay for a hit. <laughs> and he didn't know what he was going to do because at that point it looked like he wasn't going to make the team. And then he bl- yeah. has a blowout, blow up game in the fourth preseason game for the second year in a row sneaks on the roster and everything else goes from there like that's to me like he's one of in all of my time covering the lions he's actually one of my favorite stories of like literally out of nowhere that actually made it and stuck and he's been in the league what yeah. six, six years now like that's that's a good career absolutely yeah and he's gonna he's gonna get to hit free agency and i know that the cap's gonna go down and those kinds of things it may maybe a guy like that doesn't cash in as much as he would in a in a normal year but anytime you're you know seven eight sacks somewhere in that range you, you've got you've got a chance to to get a nice little payday and it's been a long time coming for him but he's he's absolutely earned it he's you can make the argument he has been their best and most consistent defensive lineman this year wow that's that's pretty impressive for him uh one hit too quickly on assistance potentially where do you think Sala would go if he came to Detroit as far as a coordinator would he be would he bring McDaniel would he bring LaFleur would he avoid both of those guys out of respect to Shanahan even though technically if it's a play caller role they can't they can go now like what would that be yeah, it's it's interesting, Mike, because Kyle Shanahan was just talking about this last week, and and I asked Sala about it too. Uh, you know, they they've had conversations. Kyle Shanahan and Robert Sala have had conversations about this. Like they've already discussed this. Now, part of that was Sala came very close to getting the Cleveland job last year, and I think there were some moving pieces that were going to go into it. But that was maybe before some of those rules had kind of changed in the in the CBA and and that kind of stuff. But I think that it's it's pretty well understood that there is going to be a couple of defections, at least one defection uh, that would likely be from the 49ers staff that would go with Robert Sala. And to me, the name that makes the most sense is Mike LaFleur, who is the passing game coordinator for the 49ers. He's also the brother of Matt LaFleur, who, as we all know, is the Green Bay Packers head coach. But the Robert Sala and the LaFleurs are very, very close to the point where I believe they were, that Matt and Robert were in each other's weddings. Uh, and, and there's there's a lot of ties that run really deep there, and I think it would make a lot of sense. And, and based on the fact that Mike McDaniel, who's the run game coordinator, is very close with Kyle Shanahan, not that he's not close with, with Mike LaFleur also, but I just think the way it kind of breaks out, that would be the way that makes the most sense. And also I think it would be a home run higher for the Lions because I think Mike LaFleur is a really, really bright guy. And to the point where Kyle Shanahan, who I think has gotten better at kind of delegating as he's gone on in his job, but really over the last couple of years has started to really empower the two Mikes, as we call them, Mike McDaniel, Mike McFloor, to, to build the game plans. I mean, and Shanahan's having input and he's kind of rubber stamping it, but he's legitimately letting those guys build out those game plans. So when you're talking about Mike LaFleur, you're talking LaFleur, you're talking about a guy who's had a, a major hand in developing game plans for an NFC championship team, like as far back as last year. So um, I think it would make a lot of sense if that was the pairing that it ultimately ended up being. And that would be, if I was, if I was a betting man, that would probably be where I would, would put my money if Salah gets that job, who we would bring with him. Would he bring somebody as a defensive play caller? Is there anyone on that staff that he would try to bring? Or do you think that he would really try to retain that himself and therefore then couldn't maybe try to poach a Kasurik back to Detroit, for instance? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that Kasurik would be, would be in play there. I don't, I don't think that and, – and the other guy who I think is a, a really promising coach that would be interesting for that role is actually D'Amico Ryans, uh, which is a name that probably people recognize, the former linebacker. He's, he's the 49ers linebackers coach. But I actually think he's got a very good shot to be Salah's replacement in San Francisco if, if it goes that way now. 
there's a lot of ways that could play out because there's a lot of really intriguing names who could be that guy. If Raheem Morris doesn't get a, a head job, I think he and, he and Kyle have a, a relationship from Atlanta. Dan Quinn is another one. If if the Chargers get blown up, I think Gus Bradley. So D'Amico, but but I don't think D'Amico Ryan's is a guy that they're going to want to let out of the building. So um, I, I think that there's a chance that that Robert Sala would want to do that, but I'm not sure that there's an obvious solution there that the Niners would be willing to just say goodbye to. And if it came down to, do you let D'Amico Ryan's go be the defensive coordinator for Robert Sala, or do you have to make him your own defensive coordinator? I tend to tend to think that they would probably rather stick with him and keep him around because one thing Kyle Shanahan has really tried to do is build up that pipeline, knowing that eventually this day is going to come. He always jokes about how he's happy that Robert Sala didn't get the job last year in Cleveland, and he wants to keep him around as long as he can. But I think we all know inevitably that Robert Sala is going to be a head coach in this league, and I think Kyle Shanahan in his perfect world has a pipeline ready of guys who are ready to replace those guys who go on to those jobs. And because no conversation is complete without a quarterback (laughs) question, Matthew Stafford's a guy that – Whoever ends up being the new head coach, there's questions about how much longer he will be in Detroit. Is San Francisco a spot that A, would be interested in him, and B, would be able to afford him, and C, he would fit? Yeah. Uh, uh, my, answer, my immediate answer to B and C is yes. Uh, they would be able to afford him. Now, that would require um, offloading Jimmy Garoppolo's contract. But actually, the way the contracts work out, they would save money by, by going from Garoppolo to Matthew Stafford. Uh, and that's just based on the way the bonus money is and stuff like that. And of course that would, that would mean not giving Stafford an extension or something. I don't know. I don't know how that would play out if that were to be something that would work. And in terms of fit, Kyle Shanahan has said many times that he believes there's maybe seven people on this earth who are just such natural throwers of the football that they are the kind of quarterbacks that you covet. And I don't know for a fact that Matthew Stafford falls into that category in Kyle Shanahan's mind, but when I think of natural throwers of the football, Matthew Stafford is certainly one of those seven names that would pop into my mind. Um, And I think a lot of the things that he can do, he's mobile enough in terms of play action and, and some of the things that they would like to do that way where he would make a lot of sense. Now the question is, are the Niners first of all ready to move on from Jimmy Garoppolo? Um, I don't, currently have the answer to that question and I'm not sure the Niners have the answer to that question because I I think the way it's going to play out is it's going to be one of those situations where their willingness to move on from Jimmy Garoppolo is directly tied to their options to replace him they have to be certain that they can get somebody better and in my opinion Matthew Stafford is better than Jimmy Garoppolo if nothing else from a durability standpoint which to me Mike that's where the rubber meets the road in this conversation is the combination of Jimmy Garoppolo's injury history and his price tag. He's going to count $27 million against the cap each of the next two years. The Niners can get out from under it with very, very little dead money. And if he doesn't play another game this year, which is looking very likely, he'll have missed 23 games over the last three years. I think the 49ers are still in a window where they can compete and contend for a Super Bowl. And I think if that's the case, how can you just wish and hope that your quarterback is going to be back healthy? So if they could – if they could obtain someone like Matthew Stafford at a reasonable price, I don't know exactly what that price would be, but in terms of draft compensation or whatever it would be, I think that's a guy that they should definitely be interested in. And I think that's a guy who would make a lot of sense for who they're trying to be in terms of contending right now. Would they be, you think they'd be willing to give up a first round pick for him? I think that's going to maybe depend on where that first round pick ultimately ends up. Uh, The fact that they lost to Dallas the other day really puts them in a position where a top 10 pick is a possibility. I would tend to doubt that because I think if you're in the top 10, now all of a sudden you're in play for one of those top three or four guys in the draft who could be a quarterback. And I think there's a scenario again, and I want to make this clear. I don't, I don't know for sure Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be gone because Jimmy Garoppolo has won a lot of games when he's been on the field. Um, and people like to debate the, his merits, and that's fine. We, we, we know what kind of world we live in when it comes to quarterback analysis these days. But they, there is a world where I think no matter what, they're going to have to upgrade their, their quarterback room. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean replacing the starter, but if you keep Jimmy Garoppolo, do you then draft a guy in the second round, like a Kyle Trask from Florida or something like that? Or do you still draft a guy in the first round and, 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 and see how that goes and, and use Jimmy as the bridge? Uh, there's a lot of different ways this could play out. So I would tend to think if it's a top 10 pick, probably a little too rich for their blood, um, especially if you get the option to get a top quarterback on a cheaper rookie contract than both of these guys we're talking about. I think that would be have to be something that they really seriously take a look at. 
Um, but there's still so many ways this can play out. But I, I definitely think if Matthew Stafford is not a Detroit Lion next year, I think I have to think the 49ers would at least take a very, very long, hard look at making him one of them. It's interesting because everything you just described, other than the fact that the Lions are heading more towards a rebuild than a window, which is why we're having this Stafford, this Stafford conversation, sounds so much like what's going on in Detroit right now. Really, really does. Yeah, it's very, it's a, it's a difficult, it's one of those difficult situations when you uh, are trying to figure out, you have a guy that you like as your quarterback, but can you upgrade? And you have all these different factors that play into it. And I know everyone always wants to make it a black and white issue. You either keep Jimmy or you don't. There's this huge expanse of gray and there's so many layers that you have to peel back to figure out the answer. And that's why I think, I don't think the Niners even know the answer yet because I think they need to be aware of what the cap's going to be, you know, what draft pick they have, which quarterbacks declare for the draft. There's all these answers that you need to get all this information that you need to get um, before you can do it. And, and I've, uh, I, I won't be covering a coaching change this year and I'm, I'm thankful for that, but uh, the quarterback thing is always one that uh, I'm, I'm not unfamiliar with. And so uh, I think that that's going to be something that is going to be the storyline we're following really closely here. Uh, as I know you will, once you get the coach and the GM thing figured out. Yeah. I was going to say you in Detroit, there's the coach hire storyline there's the gm hire storyline there's the quarterback situation storyline there's the rebuild the defense storyline all of the all of the storylines end up here in detroit nick thanks so much for coming on by the way 2016 was carrie Hyder, so he was a guy that martin mayhew initially brought in in 2015 but never really saw the fruits of what he was capable of doing nick thanks again for coming on i appreciate it yeah, thanks for having me. I could see that was bothering you. I know you had to get that answer before we before we went off of the air here. So I'm glad I'm glad you got it. But ha- happy holidays to you. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks uh, thanks for listening to all all the lines. Want to thank Nick Wagner for coming on the show. Want to thank all of you for all of your questions. Most of all, I hope you all have a happy and safe holiday. I know it's tough. This year, especially if you are not going to be around family, I will not be around family this year. Usually, even though I'm Jewish, I go down, half of my family celebrates Christmas. We go down to North Carolina. So not going to be able to do that this year. So I'll be missing my brother and my father. I love them dearly, along with my sister-in-law and her brother and his fiance and their parents. It's, It's a great time. It's such good food. I've posted it every year on Instagram and all of their dogs and gonna miss all gonna miss all of doing that this year just unfortunately not an option so hopefully you get some time with your family and be socially distant be safe mask up and thank you all for so much through this in the 2020 you can follow me on twitter and on instagram at mike rothstein on facebook at michael rothstein journalist you can follow nick wagner on the twitters at n wagner and yeah We really appreciate everything. Appreciate you following us. Thanks for five-star reviews. Thanks for downloading, subscribing, for telling your friends. And uh, we'll be back with a special episode tomorrow, a Christmas Day episode that will probably have a little bit more clarity on the Lions situation for Saturday. But also, very fun conversation with Jenna Lane, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers reporter, and we chat all about Saturday's game, a little bit about Tom Brady, and we get into some... West Wing conversation as well, because why not? So stick it right here on the Michael Rothstein Show.